When you're a part of the family of God, when you have a membership, and that's why on the first Sunday of the month, we draw your attention to be identifying with the people of God, to be part of the family of God. You shouldn't be like a lost sheep that just roams and wanders. You should be part of a flock. You should be having a shepherd that will help lead you, as Psalm 23 says, beside the still waters where your soul is restored and will give you encouragement to stay on the paths of righteousness all the days of your life so that one day when you end up going home to heaven, uh, surely goodness and mercy will be left behind in the wake. And uh, we want to encourage you to know Christ and to be a part of the body of Christ here. If you'd like to join, I'll be offering a new members class, uh, usually on the second or third week of the month. Please call the church office and we'll set up a, a seminar. We always like to get it when two or three or four families can come together and do it. Uh, we're, we're going to be receiving some new members this afternoon and bringing them in front of church next week. So if you have, if the Lord's putting it on your heart, please think about it. Uh, membership has its privileges in one way of saying it, but the, the benefits are just out of this world, to be numbered with the people of God. Now, if you'll look at the word cloud, you're going to see what draws us together is not our good looks or our deep pockets. What draws us together are the things that are printed on that cloud. And the things that are the biggest are the things that are most important. Because if you take the Bible out of New Covenant Church, you just have a club. You might have a, a, a friendly group. But the Bible is so very central. That's why it's open in front of it. When you come in on a Be Still Sunday or when you just come into church anytime, you'll see that we have an open Bible, not a closed one. We want you to be in the Word. And we have a, a, a reminder of the empty cross. The gospel is, is part of what we find in the scriptures. That's why we're gospel driven, to communicate the gospel by word and by deed uh, and, and with passion to ourselves every Sunday and to our neighbors as we live life and to the world through our missions, through our radio broadcasting so that the wonders of God's grace in Christ might really be known. We don't want people to be left in the dark. We want them in many ways, as the text says today, to wake up. And we'll deal with that in a moment. Uh, one other comment. When you, when you take one of these cards today, you'll see that it covers about two months. Uh, but we have many things that are on the horizon and we would like you to commit to be a part of things. Uh, some of these uh, chosen videos, uh, we're going to have dinner and a movie and discussion. And uh, even though it is not absolutely biblical, I've gotten some good feedback that it is edifying. So we'll have some great discussion. Bring some new people. This is the time of year as the weather's getting warmer that people should be interested in the things of God. Usually, that's a good time to invite them. If you'll turn in your Bibles, we're going to look at the scripture found in Romans chapter 13. Romans 13, it's going to be verses 11 through 14. If you have one of the, uh, the fourth point pages, which are in the back of the church, you can pick one up to take notes. Uh, it is three particular verses that wrap up chapter 13. And this is why we should reverently attend to, these, to the public reading of God's inerrant, infallible, inspired word as it was given in the originals. Besides this, Scripture says there in verse 11, besides all this in chapter 13, you know the time. Besides all of what's come before, besides all this, you know the time. For the hour has come for you to wake from your sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, 
Let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, and not in quarreling and jealousy. But instead, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just say that again. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Lord, I pray that as we open the word of God today, that you will show us things, that you will instruct us, that you will give us insight. But most importantly, I pray that we will encounter you. For our worship service is not the eloquence of a preacher, nor is it the, uh, the checking the box that we went to church. The whole reason we gather here is because you are worthy. And Lord, as we come to spend time with you, we pray that you would open our eyes, that you would grant us more spiritual sight, that we would see beyond merely our circumstances and our struggles, but we would see our Savior, that we would hear your voice, whether it be a still, small voice, or whether it be one of encouragement that comes with the people of God together. We pray, O oh Lord, that you will join us in this worship service in Jesus' name. Amen. God used this text to save one of the most prominent Christian spokesmen since the apostles. Now, think about that for a moment. Who do you think is excited about Romans 13, 13? Are you? Can you even tell me what we read? Let me reread it for you. God used this verse... And ironically, he used it because somebody opened up the Bible that he had and started reading where he left off. And that was the verse that God transformed his life. Romans chapter 13. Besides this, you know the time. The hour has come that you should wake up. For salvation is near to us. It's nearer now than, it's, than when we first believed. So the night is far gone. And the day is close. So then let us cast off the darkness and put on the armor of light and let us rock properly as people do in the daytime. This is the text that God used to transform a life. Now I could take you to a few, like Romans 1.17. When I pop that verse up, you're going to see, oh yeah, uh, where it says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ for it's the power of God to salvation. That was the verse that God used to change a little guy named Martin Luther. He couldn't let it go. The just shall live by faith, which follows right there. The righteous shall live by faith. Uh, if I, and that was in the 1500s. Um, in, the, in the 18th century, there was another guy in Deuteronomy 15.15. When he was reading that particular text, John Newton loved it. Because it talked about being free and having liberty. Uh, in the 19th century, which is in the 1800s, God used Matthew 28:20 20 to change a guy named David Livingston to take the gospel to Africa. It was, it was, uh, it was Matthew 28:20. 20. He couldn't let go. But it was in the 4th century. That was in the 300s A.D. Even uh, the, the Apostles' Creed was written uh, probably a little bit earlier than this. But in the 300s and early 400s, God used Romans 13, verses 12 and 13, to save a guy named Augustine. Augustine of Hippo. 
I don't know if he's your favorite guy to read. He only wrote a few books, but it's quite interesting because he was one of the great influencers because during this time was when the Holy Roman Empire was starting to be established. Do you know when they put together or when Christianity finally started to build churches? When people who were Christians could build a building and not be in fear? It was in the 300s. It was when Constantine, the, the Roman leader... Uh, he was the, uh, the Caesar at that time. When he ended up being taken, to, when he took the, the, the throne or he took the leadership position, he ended up having a conversion. And uh, from that point on, they were able to build buildings. They were able to have monuments. They were able to hide outside of the catacombs or outside of your own house because everything before that was privatized. And so it was this particular text that helped a guy named Augustine, Augustine, to be able to formulate ideas. And, and he was one of the ones that his writings impacted Martin Luther and John Calvin. And from their writings, it's impacted even the founding of the country we're in. And it's, it's had a ramification on even the theology that we present today. Did you think this text is that exciting? It, the story goes is that he's lived quite a life. Uh, he had a mom that was a Christian and a dad that wasn't. And Augustine ended up being uh, over in, in, in Carthage in North Africa. And uh, it was there that he studied rhetoric. He was very smart and all those kind of things. But his brother and him, they, they knew about God, but they didn't know God. And then one day there was a garden experience where uh, he ends up opening the book. And he says in verse 12, the night is far gone and the day is at hand. Let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light and walk in the day, walk in, walk, uh, he said, let us walk properly as in the day and not in doing these other things. And you know what was interesting? Augustine was guilty of all six. And it was like God had put a verse in the Bible that said, hey, I can fix your problem. I'm God. Now that text is quite interesting. Uh, but I want to be able to challenge you from this in the 21st century. Here we are. That what I believe this text is calling Christians, you and me, to awaken as well. To open our eyes. To be able to see things that maybe you haven't seen. To be able to live the life that's appropriate. And so if you're following along with me today, there are three points to highlight. And they're answering questions. Uh, the first one is this wake-up call is linked to Paul's discussion in Romans 13. It's a discussion about God's order. And it's interesting when you see how it connects. Secondly, something that you might not notice in Paul's writings. This wake-up call is an echo of what Jesus had talked about. We're in the Romans chapter 13, and many of you don't see red letter editions uh, where you're actually quoting Jesus. But I want to show you that you can see that Christ was, was the very one that was communicating this concept of waking up. And then the, uh, the application here is in the third point is the wake-up call is applied to specific Christians. Not, in a sense, it's, you could say it's to everybody, but in particular, Paul is writing here in chapter 13 to people who are asleep. And one of the questions I ask at the bottom in the fourth point, uh, I ask this question to you is, um, are you, number three here, are you spiritually asleep? Some of you are already dozed off today, right? Comfortable seats, nice little coffee cake, um, 
Are you asleep? And the question that comes up after it, how would you know if you are asleep if you're really spiritually asleep? A lot, of, a lot of people who name the name of Christ appear to be in this category that they're like the walking zombies. They're just out of it. They're not even aware of the circumstances. And when Paul was writing to the church at Rome, he says, wake up, wake up. You can almost hear him uh, screaming it or, or like the front picture of the bulletin. You can hear the bells of the alarm going off. Ding, 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 ding. You're here today. I don't want you to leave asleep. No sleepwalking, please. Okay, so as we, uh, as we, as we tackle this particular text, uh, the first thing I want to deal with is its location. Uh, the idea of waking up is not a new concept in the New Testament. You'll find it in a lot of places. But why would we find it in chapter 13 of Romans? Now, let me do a quick overview for you. We've been doing Romans in reverse, and it only has 16 chapters, okay? And uh, we haven't really spent a lot of time in chapters 1 through 12 yet. We've spent a lot of time from the back, from 16, 15, 14, 13, uh, and we haven't gotten through 13 yet. And then we're going to get to that great text in chapter 12, verse 1, which everybody does know or should know. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you would present yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, and that's simply reasonable. That's your duty, your, uh, that's your act of spiritual worship. Now... I want to just highlight for the fact that if you start in chapter 16 and go backwards as we've done, chapter 16 is all about Paul saluting everybody in Rome. It's almost like he's waving to them all. Or if you want to say he's standing there at attention. He says, wow, I appreciate all these people. And so I believe chapter 16 appreciates the people who have been serving the Lord. If you back up to chapter 15, I believe that text is all about unity or harmony. It's people actually working together in the church. He's been just given this whole 15 chapters and he gets to the chapter 15 and he says, come on, folks, work together. Okay, if you back up a little bit on uh, chapter 14, chapter 14, we spent a lot of time on Christian liberty. And this is where some people think this is okay and some people think this is okay. It's kind of like this. You know, I remember when I was uh, in the Christian school growing up, uh, the people at the Christian school thought that you were a bad person if your hair went over your ears. That was if you were a male. If you were a female, it was good for you to have hair over your ears. And they took it from 1 Corinthians 11, so they had a scriptural subtext for it. But it was really all about, if you're going to be great, this is the way you have to do it. If you're going to be a sinner, you're going to do this. And back in those days, even if we turned the radio on to the wrong station, it was just, there was a lot of do's and don'ts. You know, you couldn't go to a movie theater because those were Satan's domain. I don't know, some of you remember those days. Now... Those kind of differences were not, they didn't have to separate the wheat from the chaff because I believe there were Christians who actually wanted to live a holy life and there were Christians who didn't think that that was the issue. And so we had Christian liberty tells us in chapter 14, hey, you can eat meat offered to idols, but if it offends somebody, plan not to eat it in front of them. And work together because we have Christian liberty. That was chapter 14. Then chapter 13 was an interesting one and that gives us the, where we're at in our text Chapter 13 says, hey, you guys in Rome, Paul is saying, I know that you're at Rome. I know that you have the Capitol building there. I know that that's where the Caesar is. I know that's where the Senate meets. I know that's where all the important people live. That's where all the decisions get made. That's where all the money is. 
You know, in a sense, when Paul is writing chapter 13 to the people that are there, he says, hey, I don't have blinders on. I know that it's not so easy being a believer in Rome. The secular world's power base is right there. So what he does in chapter 13 is really quite interesting. And I believe this wake-up call is in, at the end of chapter 13 for a reason. There are three things that you find in this particular text in chapter 13. The first is God's gift of order. And that's when you read those first five verses of chapter 13. He says, government is there not to be a problem, but to be an aid. Government is there to provide this beautiful thing called order. And if you remember, I used the illustration for us about the lanes on the road when you have a big highway. If, you, if everybody could do whatever they wanted to do, you'd never be able to go over five miles an hour. And the picture that I had up there was a crash where you knew somebody messed up. And when they messed up, then it created traffic jams, it cra an eyesore. I mean, it, and it's like, almost like because people didn't have good order, it was a mess. And some of you related to the cars that crashed, and some of you related to the cars in the traffic jam, and some of you related to the cars that were all slowed down because they were looking at the crash. You were praising God that you weren't in the car that was crashed. But you see, Romans 13 tells us that God, who is so gracious, provided delegated authority to three places in this world, inside the home, inside the church, and inside the, uh, the state. And so when you read that, it's God's gift of order. And he puts people to wield that, that gift. And praise God for it. That's what the beginning of chapter 13 is all about. And then you go a little further into the text after he says God gave us this order and we shouldn't rebel against that order because that would be anarchy and that would be rebelling against the order that God set up. Christians are not anarchists. We actually have a God who is in charge of everything and he does everything decently in order and so we're not free to be disorderly that way. We follow his lead. Now, if you look a little further in the text, that's why it talks about love, love, love. I thought it was interesting a couple weeks ago, why did we deal with love in Romans 13? Who loves government? But I found that love is the mortar that keeps God's order. So God gives this gift to, of, of order, and then because people are human beings, we try to work with one another, and it's because of that compassion. You might hear it in the uh, golden rule. Do unto others as... I don't, I don't know if you like that one or not. You want to do others better than what they should do to you? Or do you want it to be equal? Last week I talked about fairness... But it's interesting that because God has given humanity this idea of brotherhood or civility, love keeps us from being as bad as we could be. And so we do care for others and we do see the mutual benefit of having order and having structure in our life. And so love is the mortar that keeps God's order. And even though that's not the agape love, it is the idea that we are kind of our brother's keeper. So that was where you got chapter 13, the gift of order, and then it's maintained because people are people. You know, you don't leave it up to pets to keep order, do you? You know, even our lovely dog for 17 years, it doesn't clean up after itself. It doesn't maintain good order. We still have to train it, take it, do all these kind of things. Uh, but with people, good order is something that is a part of being in the image of God. So then this text right at the end of chapter 13 comes into play and he says, wake up. Now, who is he writing to? He's writing to Christians. 
And so now when you understand that this particular text there is, is that Christians, uh, I like to put it this way, God orders Christians to be orderly. I like the word order in there. So at, this, at the end of chapter 13, God orders Christians to be orderly. If you look with me to, to, to the actual text there, I believe in verse 13, it says, let us, help me out here, let us walk, what's the next word there? Properly. Does your translation, anybody else have a better word? What was it? Okay, yes. There's, there's, a, there's several different ways you could interpret this particular text. But, but the idea of walking properly or orderly, okay, it, de- it tells you that there is a right way to walk. There's almost, to use the analogy of driving, there's a right lane to stay in. There is order to be maintained, and this is not necessarily all about how long your hair can be or what kind of music you can listen to or how much drink you can drink. But the orderliness is is a reflection about God. And so God orders Christians to be orderly. And he's telling the people in Rome that this is very important. And then I'll read it again to you. Let us, that means all the believers, let's all the Christians, including Paul, he says, let us walk properly. And then he makes some parallels as in the daylight or in the daytime. And he makes a big contrast here, not like the secular people who are not walking properly or upright, They're not walking orderly, but they are engaged in orgies, drunkenness, sexual immorality, sensuality, quarreling, and jealousy. Does that describe our world today? Do they walk properly? Do you expect them to walk properly? I think a lot of us would say we would like that to be. We would like that brotherly love that keeps the order in God's, uh, keeps the mortar in God's order. You know, we would like that to happen and translate it so that people would just live decent and pure and, and, and upright lives. But if you remember from Jeremiah, Jeremiah said that the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? And people are constantly looking for alternatives. If they don't know God, they're going to do what's right in their own eyes. And if you listen to the many voices of today's culture, you can do whatever you want to do. In fact, it's gotten to a place where there's a dictator over there in in Asia, in North Asia, who has decided that he is just going to take over a country. He can do whatever he wants. Now, when you realize that Christ orders Christians to live orderly, then this command or this imperative in the text in chapter 13 fits. Now you got it. That God has established order and we're supposed to wake up that we fit into God's order because he orders us to be orderly. And if you get that, you can see how this is how we have an impact on society. And it also fulfills the mandate from chapter 12, which we'll get to. The word decently and an orderly, it comes from a Greek word that actually is, uh, I could impress you, euskimanos. Okay, the EU is like the the beginning of eulogy. It means good. The EU means good. And then you have the word scheme. So it's a good scheme, or he says it's a good form, a good good plan. And so he says when you walk according to, I like to call it, according to the script, then you'll always be where you need to be. You're not supposed to just ad-lib and do whatever you want to do. You follow the directions, or let me take the uh, pun you follow the scriptures which are able to make you wise unto God's salvation. 
This is the same word that uh, Romans 13 brings out. It's also found in 1 Thessalonians 4, 12, uh, where its contrast is to idleness and, uh, and it combats the evils and, res and, and bad testimonies. But it's the same idea there of, of doing things decently and orderly. But I like 1 Corinthians 14, 40. If you bring that one up, you can see that this is one on the back of the bulletin card. When you come to church, we have this in front of us every day. It's the top of the verse uh, right on the, on the back side of the bulletin card, which says that, that we should do all things decently and orderly. And so you can see this is not a new concept. And so when I, when I digest all of this, the scriptures tell us that the word itself says this is good. You know, a, a good order or, or honest and all that. But also in this text, he is giving the people in Rome a mandate. And if you look there, there's eight uses of, of a time word. So if you, if you read it with me again in verse 11, you're going to see it. He says, besides this, you know the time. The hour has come for you to wake from the sleep. For salvation is nearer to us than, now than when we first believed. The key word in all of these is the word now. Now is an adverb. It's punctiliar. It, it, it's a, st a statement about time. It's not future and it's not past. It's right now. And so when he's writing to the Christians or the believers that are in Rome, he says, hey, this is for you today, right now. And he puts around it other words that uh, eight other or seven other words like time, hours, sleep, night, day, at hand, daytime. All of these are also time references. Do you think the people in Rome were, were really worried about 10 years down the road? Do you think they had any green climate people back in those days that were saying that the world was going to come to an end in seven years? I think that the persecution was pretty mass, mag, uh, major. You know, when you realize that Domitian and Nero and some of these other emperors, when they, when they got ticked off by the believers, they had the power to do nasty things. They could send you right to the Colosseum and you could be a sport and eaten up by the lions. One swipe of one of those mighty paws. Or you might be put in there and you'd have to defend yourself against some gladiator or something. Or they could have done the worst to you. Like crucifixion. Now is the time, and it's seen in this particular text. God is telling the people in Rome under this powerful government that they are ordered to be orderly. They are to have a life that is different so that when people observe them, there would be a new world. And, they, and that's why in this particular text you get the contrast. You get it uh, on, on, uh, on that second part, the exhortations. Uh, the first pair gives, a, gives the negative examples here of carousing. This is what the secular people do. Carousing and drunkenness. They just want to have a good time. They want to let their hair down. They want to do whatever. It's almost like life's a beach. Let's, uh, let's go on down to Dewey or something. You know, what goes on in Dewey stays in Dewey. I don't know if you heard that one, but maybe that's the case. Um, and the second pair of negatives are the affairs and the indecencies. This is what the secular world says is no big deal. They have erased the standards and the traditions that God has set up to be normal. And the third is what happens to their attitude, not just their conduct. They have strife and they are jealous. They can't be content even if they do whatever they pursued to do on their own. Now this is why this is so very important for us to wake up. Because the Christians that are asleep 
are going to mimic the world. They're going to do as Romans 12 said, they'll conform to this world rather than being transformed. Now, where did this idea come from? If you, the words of Jesus is where it comes from. I was uh, pretty fascinated here because when you look at this particular text in chapter 13, he says, let us walk properly. So he says, wake up, verse 11. Besides this, you know the time and the hour has come for you to awake from the sleep. For salvation is nearer now. And there's this urgency. Now, where do you get this idea of an urgency? And I believe the wake-up call is echoed from Jesus' words in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, I believe that even though if you, if you go back in history, you're going to find that the writing of the book of Romans was almost synonymous with the writing of the book of Matthew. And we don't know if Paul was able to interact with some of these other characters, but they were all written probably in the 60s. You know, that's not with the 1960s or 1860s. This was just in the 60s. Okay, about 30 years after Jesus has died, buried, and resurrected, and ascended to heaven. About three decades have passed, and now these apostles are writing these things down. They're, they're giving a, a collection of information to the people who are dying off for the next generation. Folks that actually saw Jesus hang on the cross were still alive when Paul was writing this. But many of them were not going to be alive very long. And God in his providence was securing scripture for us. And it's interesting to me that when I've read the epistles, I've hardly ever seen, well, I've never seen any red letter editions where you can actually quote Jesus by the apostle. Paul wasn't there. Paul was converted in Acts chapter 9, several chapters after, after the, uh, the Pentecost in chapter 2. Paul didn't get to do a lot of listening to Jesus if he had heard anything at all directly. But when you look at this particular text, the idea of wake up and the idea of now is the time and, to, and the call to walk properly, it sounds just like what Jesus said in Matthew 22, 23, and 24. And uh, when, I, when I look around it, it's kind of interesting to me how this, um, I can read it for you here, that, that when um, in chapter 22, I'll read it for you in, in the text here. He says, uh, I think I have it right there. The parallelism that are there. He ends up telling them that in, in, in chapter 22, there was the, the call to be uh, aware of things, but uh, chapter 24 is the key text where he uses the parable of the virgins. The virgins are, there's 10 of them, and uh, they are supposed to keep their lamps burning. They were supposed to stay awake. And during this time, Five of them came prepared. They, they were trying to stay awake. They had the right uh, amount of oil and all that kind of stuff, whereas five of them didn't come prepared. They were kind of winging it. And so Jesus gave this analogy, and if you take the time at home to read it in chapter 24, you're going to find that the, uh, the master came, and, the, and so the ones who had their lamps lit, the ones who were awake were welcomed in, and the other ones were left behind, and they were like, let me in, let me in, let me in, because they had fallen asleep quite dangerous when you think about this but when you look through the text of scripture you're going to find that Jesus was encouraging people with his parables to teach uh, I mean to, to know these things and I believe the Holy Spirit was bringing to light some of these extra points that that when the Holy Spirit was going to bring to light what Jesus had taught after he left you can see that in the gospel of John that he was going to help people to say oh that's what he meant and I believe here the apostle is telling God's people in Rome to wake up because Jesus had encouraged the saints to be awake and not have spiritual sleep. And now the, uh, the, the last point there has to do with, uh, if you're following in your bulletin card, the wake-up call is applied to, to who? 
to sleeping believers, to folks who are full of slumber, who are relaxed, who are chilled out. And I just want to quickly walk through a couple of them to be able to say, the Bible has lots of examples of people who, who were sleeping that were Christians. The first one that comes to my mind is Jonah. Do you remember when Jonah was asleep? He was on the boat. Now, <laughs> do you want to praise Jonah for being asleep? I mean, he didn't even have to take any, uh, any kind of pills. He didn't have to have any extra help. He didn't even have to have that aroma in the air. He was out on the ship sailing away because he wanted to get away from God's will. Here's a Christian who doesn't like God's will. He's, and, he's, and he's comfortable in saying, I'll just sleep it off. It's really sad when you look at Jonah 1, 5 to 6, you realize that he missed the opportunity to be able to proclaim Christ even to the people on the boat. They had to wake him up. Now, if I take you to the next one in Matthew 13, verses 25 to 29, uh, those... those uh, in chapter 13 there, while his men were sleeping, the enemy came in and sowed weeds among the wheat. And, and Now, this is when Jesus gives a parable. And he was talking about the wheat and the tear. And he says there was a good farmer, and the farmer was trying to take care of all of his business. But when he was asleep, when the people were asleep, there were some other people who came in, and they sowed seeds that were weeds. And so when they all awoke and they saw how things grew up, it was a mess. And you couldn't pull out the weeds at the same time because you'd pull up the wheat. And so this is one of the challenges there. Don't be asleep. Matthew brings that point out when he explains it rather than the others. But in Luke 22, you guys probably all thought of this one already, the example of the disciples. And Jesus is in Gethsemane. This is uh, right after he's instituted the Lord's Supper. He goes to Gethsemane and he tells them, can't you guys stay awake? And of course, they can't. They're laying there, laying down on the ground there by all those olive trees. And Jesus ends up praying alone. Romans chapter 13, the apostle Paul finally tells the people in Rome, he says, hey, don't be a sleeper. Don't stay asleep. Now, I found this to be interesting because in Ephesians chapter 5, he tells the church in Ephesus the same thing. Don't stay asleep. If you got that verse there, it's for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, I say, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is the apostle writing to the church at Ephesus that he was even more familiar with. So the idea of telling people that are Christians to wake up, the church in Ephesus needed it. In fact, if you go to Thessalonica, which is the next text, you're going to find that he tells the people there to awaken as well. Somehow or other, Christians like to go to sleep. In 1 Thessalonians, he says, So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and let us be sober about it. Let's be serious. Let's be intentional about it. And if I took you to Corinth, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in the chapter that he talks about the resurrection, he ends up saying the same thing. Wake up from your drunken stupor as it is right and, and do not go on sinning for some have no knowledge of God and I say this to your shame. He is telling the people in Corinth, he says, you guys seem content to not tell anybody. Wake up. Wake up. This idea of a wake-up call, there are numerous, numerous examples that are set before us, but the, but the encouragement for us today is that there will be more to it than that. So when I look at the particular text of, of Scripture, you're going to find that the... Um, I found out why I 
got my notes out of order. But, but in, in this thing, he looks at the people and he's, and he's giving them some counsel. What does it mean to be awake? What does it mean? When I ask you if you're asleep, if you're sleeping, you wouldn't know you're sleeping. And if I ask you and you're awake and, and I ask you to sleep, you ought to quickly be able to say, no, I'm not asleep. I am fully cognizant. I'm awake. I'm aware of what's going on the, uh, the, at the switches. And that's why I want to challenge all of us that the scripture is clear here that we should be awake. Uh, in, in application, there are five reasons to stay awake. So here they go. First one is our salvation is near. Our salvation is near. This is a little bit hard to interpret. Some people have looked at it and said that, uh, that this is all referring to the second coming, the day of judgment when we are going to stand before God. And so the question is, you need to wake up because your time is short. And, and the way that he phrases it in the text is a little interesting because he, um, uh, he says, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. I think the, the best explanation that I've gathered here is that the, uh, the apostle is saying, hey, you're running out of time. You're running out of time. You know when you have the most amount of time to serve God? It's the moment when you became a Christian. From that point on, you had the most amount of time to be able to serve God. But if you've been a Christian for five years or ten years, you don't have as much time. You don't have as much earthly time. Now, we'll be singing God's praise in eternity forever, but, but this idea of telling us to wake up is an earthly admonition. And so he says, you have less time to serve God now than when you first believed, so don't waste your time. Your time is not unlimited. And that's why when I talk about us having a, a, a bucket list, things that you want to do because you know that you can't be here forever or do everything, so he says, wake up and engage kingdom business. Don't, don't treat yourself like uh, John Piper wrote a book, do you have a wasted life? You know, my dad used to tell us when we came home with report cards, to whom much is given, much is required. In other words, there's a lot for you to be doing. The time between the moment of regeneration and the moment of consummation is click, it's ticking. And the time that will be changed to glory is going to happen soon. It may be morning, maybe evening, but it's coming soon. I want you to wake up. Now, secondly, that was the first thing, is that we have a limited amount of time. We're near the second coming. Secondly, the reason to wake up for Christians is you have no right to sleep when there is work to be done. Why did God put you on this earth? Is it to, to eat popcorn and watch Netflix? Why are you here? What are you supposed to accomplish? Sometimes you finally answer that question when you get a big cancer diagnosis or, or recently, you know, if you got diagnosed with COVID. There was a sense of like, oh, what do I have left? Spurgeon put it this way. He said that there is work to be done and so it's not a time to sleep. In Ephesians 2.10, it tells us clearly that God has put us here to accomplish things that he has before ordained that we should be doing. Whether you go to Mordecai and Esther where he looked at this little pretty girl and he says, girl, he says, you're here for maybe this purpose. It may be that a pastor or somebody comes up to you and say, you may be here to do this. So do it. Wake up from your spiritual slumber. We are, about to be our, we are to be about our father's business. We are to seek first our own agenda, right? Matthew 6, 33. Seek ye first the 
kingdom of God and its righteousness and all these things will be taken care of. They'll be added unto you. You see, there is a lot of work to be done and we shouldn't remain asleep when we have many things to be up doing. Uh, third reason, because we have enemies that are awake who are working even when we are not. Do you know that if, if we all go into that uh, spiritual uh, malaise, you know, just walk around, just don't say anything, you know, you don't even shake people's hands, you just are a Christian living in a fallen world and you're not bothering anybody, you're not affecting anybody, you actually are. You may not realize it. Because people may say, I don't want to be like that. I don't want what you have. You see, the enemy, the devil is like a roaring lion and he goes about seeking to devour. You don't have to go to Satan. Hey, Satan, wake up, wake up, Satan. No, the prince and power of this air is, is going about. He's got his minions shooting his fiery darts, Ephesians 6. The spiritual warfare is on. We don't have to wait for some individual to say, let's send that rocket or let's send this division here, just like what they're doing over the border of the Ukraine. No, the spiritual warfare, we wrestle not against people, not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual wickedness in all kinds of places. The darkness that comes. The enemy's on the move. Peter put it in his second epistle when he was finishing up in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. He says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And sadly, many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. They'll be mocked. And in their greed, they will exploit you with their other alternative words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle because their destruction is not asleep. I'm telling you, the enemy is on the move. A fourth reason why we should wake up is because there is something worth waking up for. It's not just that work needs to be done, but there's something that's worth it. If I go to 1 John 2, 17... It, it ends up saying there, John was writing, and he says, everything else is going to pass away. You know, you may really get sad if, if the stock market crashes and your investment goes down. But you know what? In light of eternity, it's not going to be a big deal. You shouldn't have to jump out of one of Wall Street's windows like they did in 1928 or 29. When you realize the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God, finish it with me, abides forever. You see, there is something worth carrying on. The world's alternatives, they look like they're fun. Why do you think people want to try them? Did you see the pairings, the, car the, uh, the carousings and drunkenness, the affairs and the indecencies and the strife and the, and the jealousy? The world is constantly moving in that direction. Don't be content. Don't be satisfied. Don't be at peace. Don't have that sense of security. They're always constantly telling you what you have is not good enough. And what they tell you is, we can fix it. Do what we tell you to do. We will be your God, and you can be our people. It's very, very subtle. I told you there's five reasons. The fifth one that I came up with is because it is the now time. When I look at the, the apostle writing to the people in Rome, it'd be like writing to people in Washington, D.C. 
They see the fences. They see all this kind of stuff. They see all the police cars. They see all the, the black SUVs. They're probably fully comfortable in knowing that there's going to be uh, officials coming by that are going to block up the intersections and all that kind of stuff. Uh, when he says to them, he says, now is the time. And the apostle has written the book of Romans. And we're already to chapter 13. And many of you may not realize, but there were some other verses that are in there. In Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Romans 3, 21. This is where he talks about the now time. After he's explained that everybody's a sinner and falls short of the glory of God, verse 21 says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. He says, Hey, people in Rome, I got good news for you. This is not Old Testament era where we're waiting, 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 waiting. He says, I'm 30 years after it happened. And now I can tell you that we have a righteousness available to us that's not by our performance, not by our law keeping. We have a righteousness that's available from his performance. And that's why when you go a little further in chapter 3 and chapter 4, I'm going to take us to chapter uh, 5. If you go to verse 9, he says, Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled by his blood, we are reconciled to him, shall we be saved by his life? And he goes on to say, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ that we have received this reconciliation. There's a point in which Paul keeps saying, now, now, now. And if you go to chapter 8, you can't miss it either. At the beginning of chapter 1, there is therefore now no more condemnation if you are in Christ Jesus. And that's why in chapter 11, verse 17, he explains it even a little bit more before he makes his big shift. But in chapter 11, verse 17, he says, But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Don't be arrogant. And he goes on about a few other things. Here's the point. When should you come to Christ? When should you wake up? Tomorrow? hope you're seeing the intensity of the apostle he has been working with these people in rome who have been asleep at the switches it's it's almost like i picture them sitting in a car waiting for the internet to drive it for them okay now is the day of salvation and when he gets to that point where he says to the people I, come, I order you to be orderly because this is what Christ does in you. He changes you. And so when you are awake, Tim Keller had a quote. I was going to read it for you. It was very, very practical in application. He says, spiritually, what it means, this I'll finish with prayer after this. Spiritually, what does it mean to be asleep? The Bible is constantly talking about this. Paul is saying, awake. Because it's time for you to awaken and cast off the sleep because of the ark of salvation. He says in Romans 13, it is closer than the day in which we believed. What does it mean to be awake spiritually? It means to let eternal reality affect us more than the temporary. So he asks, what is really controlling you right now? Now this is an extremely practical thing. You are sleepy when your boss tells you, uh, <laughs> this is his application, when, when what the boss tells you is more important than what Jesus tells you. 
Being sad is not sleepy condition because Jesus was constantly sad. If you're always happy, you're in a sleepy condition too. Jesus saw the sadness out there and felt the pain out there, but depression is a non-Christian condition. Because you see what's happening in depression is something is something is coming along and you are most aware of it rather than actually than actual reality of what God is and what God says to you. What he's basically saying is spiritual sleep is when you start caring about what other people say, about what goes on at your employment, about what goes on in the stock market, about what's on the TV, more than what God says. Are you spiritually asleep? When you look at what's going on in this world, whether it's the carousings and the sensuality, whether it's the jealousy and the fightings, do you see God's direction at all? When you're spiritually awake, you're not leaning on your own understanding. You're acknowledging him in all your ways. And he will make your path forward orderly. And he will make it straight. Lord Jesus, I do thank you that there is hope in Christ. I thank you, O oh Lord, that the people in Rome, even though they suffered, though they were going through a lot of difficulties, and in some cases... They were struggling even to understand how the salvation worked out. The Apostle Paul took a lot of time to tell him how important it was to get right with God now, to awaken from this spiritual slumber that makes things say, well, God must be on vacation, or we don't worry about God until Sundays. Lord, the call to be spiritually awake is a call to have Christ in our forethoughts 24-7 to meditate on his direction day and night. And that's what makes us like Psalm 1's tree that's planted by the rivers of water that will bring forth fruit in its time. Lord, I thank you that you have given us this message today through Romans 13, that yes, you've given us the gift of order and that our, our brotherhood allows it to stay together, but our Christian brotherhood en en enables us to actually make a difference. We pray that you will shine through our witness these days. In Christ's name.